This morning's scripture is from the book of Psalms, chapter 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. <clears throat> I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down in the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will, be, will glory in him, while the mouths of the liars will be silenced. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. We, we welcome you into the house of the Lord. I was getting used to 10 o'clock services when we had just the one service. 9 o'clock is kind of rough, isn't it? <laughs> well, I do want to um, greet you all, and I want to give a special greeting to those who are watching this service online. If you're new to Maple Valley, you're looking for a church, we invite you to come and to worship with us here. There's, we honor the scriptures and lift up our Lord Jesus Christ. So do come and visit us. We'd be glad to greet you and welcome you into our fellowship. Now, I do want to give a special shout-out uh, this morning uh, to my family and friends in New Zealand who I know will be watching this service. So a special <laughs> greeting to you. Well, today we're going to begin uh, the uh, brief series on the, uh, our mission statement, if you will. And it's, you're seeing it uh, here and there, all over the places. Um, it's more God, more love, more life. Let's say that together. More God, more love, more life. And this is our mission statement, and we're going to be having three messages um, on this uh, statement. Now, I'm preaching today because Pastor Pete is down in the San Francisco Bay Area. His mother is having her 80th birthday and Pastor Pete and his two brothers and uh, their families, they're down there celebrating. So that's a, a great time for them. And so that's how I get to be uh, preaching today. Well, we're looking at uh, Psalm 63. And as a backdrop to this, I want to ask you a question. Uh, and it's a question that I ask myself as well. And the question is, what do, who does, I mean, excuse me, what does God mean to you? What does God mean to you? With the backdrop of more God being the first emphasis of our mission statement. What does God mean to you? And I'm using Psalm 63, although I'm not preaching on the whole psalm, but simply the first verse or the first part of the first verse, if you will. And here it is, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, 
My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we're going to explore this verse or the first portion of it as, a, as the emphasis of more God. But what does, what does God mean to you in your life? That is the question. Now this psalm is what is called an individual psalm and it's a lament and you can sense that. And it's attributed to David, a psalm of David, and there are good reasons for that. I think the spiritual intensity of it, uh, the military images that are used, the hunger for worship, and there is some mention there of the king, King David. So we, it is attributed, as you see up the top, if you've got a Bible open this morning, it says, a psalm of David, when he was in the desert of Judah. And the reason for that was he was fleeing his son who was leading a rebellion against his kingly leading of the nation of Israel. So he was in great distress, and he was in the desert, so that's the imagery there. Now, as I say, I'm not going to give an exposition of the whole psalm. I'm just simply taking the first part of the first verse. O God, you are my God, earnestly or eagerly. Either word is appropriate here. Earnestly or eagerly. I seek you. Now, this is what is called a parallelism. Now, I want to give you just a little, little uh, biblical interpretation here. And it's, it's pretty simple, but it helps you understand what Hebrew poetry is about. Of course, there are the poetic books of the Old Testament, and um, you, they, they use this uh, style of writing called, or poetry called parallelism. That is, you say something, you say, say it again with a little more added to it. You say it a third time with a little more added to it. Or it, it steps down, or it steps in contrast. Now, we're used to what we would call phonetic poetry. The poetry of the Western world tends to be rhyming, not so much of thoughts, but of words. Now, let me, let me share a poem with you, which I think illustrates it. It's a fairly prof profound poem. Um, Algae met a bear... The bear met algae. The bear grew bulgy. The bulge was algae. Now, we understand that, don't we? It is phonetic rhyming. It appeals to our ears. But that is not what Hebrew poetry is all about. It's, a, it's, it's about parallelism. And what we have here is a parallelism in this first verse. O oh God, you are my God, Earnestly I seek you. And this is kind of a step-up parallelism. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Stepping up in greater intensity. That's what this uh, particular verse is all about. Now, I think and we're, I'm imposing on what David is recorded as saying here in this psalm. Um, three understandings of God. I think uh, he, of course, initially, in his own situation, was just responding to his desperate need of a greater experience of God, of Yahweh, because of the desperate circumstances he was in. But I think we can go beyond that and say, actually, there are three understandings of God here in this particular parallelism in verse 1. And that's what I want to look at 
today, and I'm going to... Um, this, the very first one is the God of intellectual belief. If you're taking notes, you can put these down in the blanks. The God of intellectual belief. And that's right at the very beginning. God, oh God, the God of intellectual belief. And I want to illustrate the three understandings of, of God in optics. And I think this is what we would call a wide view of God, and I think binoculars uh, illustrate it well. Uh, it gives, when you have binoculars, they can give you a wide perspective. And this is the God of intellectual belief. It's the wide view of God, which is quite common in our world today. Now, there are those actually who are atheists, of course, um, and atheism has always been around, intellectual atheism has always been around, but it has increased in numbers. And with those who believe in no religious affiliation, is it the knowns they're called? Is that how you pronounce it? N-O-N-E-Z? I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation, but in a religious affiliation, they, they have no none. No religious affiliation. And so if you put the, the intellectual atheists and the agnostics and those who have no religious affiliation or no understanding or appreciation of God together, the, the figures have developed uh, quite a bit. It used to be like um, 24% 15 years ago. More recently, it's about 37% of our population here in the United States are intellectual atheists. And uh, I want to read to you what David Cronenberg said. Now, you may not be familiar with him, but he's a movie director. Probably his most prominent uh, film was called Crash, which some of you... Anybody see that movie, Crash? Yes, a number of you saw it. And this is what he had to say. I'm not interested in religion. For me, it's not even worth discussion. I'm simply a non-believer and have been forever. To discuss religion is to put me in a debate with myself. We're all going to die. That is the end of all consciousness. There is no afterlife. There is no God. I'm an atheist and my parents were atheists. I went through all those things, these things as a kid, wondering about the existence of God or not. But at an early age, I decided we made up God because we are afraid and it is one way to make things palatable. Kind of depressing, isn't it? Anyway, that's his view. But in our society, there are those who hold to an intellectual belief in God. It's just sort of a head knowledge, a tipping of the hat to God, if you will. They're not intellectual atheists, but they are practical atheists because they live their lives without any reference to God. And that makes up a, a, a big proportion of the people here in the United States, practical atheists. Their view of God is, God, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. And that's about all it is. It's, uh, it, it's their God. And we have a God in society today, and I, I've heard it described in, as being the mush God, the mush God, the soft God, the God who has no edges, the God who doesn't make great demands upon us. And I think it was uh, Calvin Miller I have a quote here from him, where he talked about the mush God or the soft God. We've all gotten to like this soft new God, this God that welcomes everybody, the God who comes in a bubble wrap, has no sharp edges to needle or offend anybody, the God we can all take together. 
He has no heritage, and of course, we never learn to pray in the name of Jesus to serve this God. This is the great mush God. He's been known to appear to millionaires on the golf course, politicians at ribbon-cutting services, to clergymen speaking the invocation on national television. The great mush God has no theology. He's a cream of wheat divinity. He has no particular credo, for this God is not a jealous God. He's the God of the, ro the Rotary, the service club, the God of the optimist, the God of the buddy system. The mush God is a serviceable God whose laws are not chiseled in stone, but whose laws are written in sand, amenable to amendment, qualification, or erasure. This, will God, this God will make any agreement you wish and will declare all alliances holy. So that's the God that's out there. And, and people are practical atheists. They believe in this sort of God, this God who makes no demands upon you. Oh, God, the God of intellectual belief. But we're going to go beyond that today. And uh, the next one here is found in the, the, the next part of the verse, where it says, You are my, my God. You are my God. Now, how would we describe this? Well, I believe this speaks of the God of personal experience. The God of personal experience. You are my God. Now, the optics for this would perhaps be the telescope, which gives you a focused view of God. And these are the blanks that you can fill in. Now, compare it to a t telescope. You are my God. Now, when you look in the Scriptures, it, in, it seems to me that in the Old Testament, the, uh, the Israelites, and in the New Testament, the Christians, had a personal experience of God and a close walk with God. You look in the New Testament and think of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, um, For I know whom I have believed, 2 Timothy 1.12, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have, have, I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So the Apostle Paul here is sharing the God of personal experience. And then too, if you go beyond that to the writer John, not in the Gospels, but in his letters, right at the very first, uh, the opening verses of the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Seen, looked, touched. Doesn't this speak of the God of personal experience? The God who's alive? And then, of course, you have the writer of Psalm 23, presumably David. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Personal God. Personal experience. Walking with God. This is not dull Christianity, dull churchianity. It's not superficial religiosity. It's not deadening, deadening, deadening formalism. It's not being related to the church, for example, as a social institution but it's being related to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I want to give you a couple of illustrations of this. One is from church history, and the other is from these days, today. 
The first one concerns the founder of Methodism, the Methodist Church, John Wesley. Several years ago, Billy Joe and I were in London, and we were going to visit the London City Museum. This is not the British Museum, which is very large and magnificent, um, but it is the Museum of the History of the City of London. And as we were walking to that museum, we happened to be on a, on a street called Aldersgate Street. And I saw a plaque on the wall there. Aldersgate rang a bell to me. And there was a plaque, and it said, on this site in the 18th century was the Moravian Chapel, where John Wesley sat. And he had, a, uh, the preacher was reading the preface, this is amazing, um, to the letter, to a commentary on the letter of the Romans. He was reading a preface to it. And John Wesley, sitting there, felt his heart strangely warmed. And he said, I knew that I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Just a backstory to that quickly. Uh, he had been brought up in privilege in England. He was ordained in the Church of England. He was a clergyman. He'd gone to Georgia, uh, the settlement of Georgia, where the state of Georgia is now. He'd gone there to get married. His fiancée turned him down when he got there. He tried to plant a church. It was a total failure. He was there two years, and he came back to London as a disillusioned man. But there he was, hungry, ordained, hungry, dissatisfied. And he realized that he needed to trust Christ and Christ alone for his, for his salvation. He had his heart strangely warmed. That's what he did. And, uh, of course, the history of England was changed because of him. He was on fire for Jesus Christ. He had a burning heart for Christ. He went up and down on horseback preaching the gospel and planted many churches. And he was a very uh, methodical man, and he set in a... Uh, an arrangement of teaching for all these new churches that were planted under his ministry and the other preachers that he trained. He was very methodical. And so these Christians were called Methodists. That's where the name came from because they were very methodical in everything that they did. Okay, well, that's a bit of church history. But it's a reminder that salvation comes from trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. There is that dark night of the soul when we stand before the cross. We do business with God. And we say, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of being in your presence. You are a holy God. I trust Jesus Christ who died that I might live, who died that I might be cleansed from my sins. His righteousness becomes mine, and I can stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an up-to-date story of conversion, if you like. I know I used this not too long ago here from the pulpit, but it always touches my heart. I like to read it again. I was living in paradise, Hawaii, that is. I had everything a 20-something female could desire, an apartment a block from Waikiki, tennis courts across the street, money to burn, zany girlfriends, and a drop-dead gorgeous boyfriend with a convertible. Wow. There was no logical reason for me to walk into that Honolulu bookstore on my lunch hour and buy, of all things, a Bible. But I did just that. 
I began reading in Matthew, and somewhere in the book of Acts, I came to believe, really believe what I'd heard before. It was the kind of belief that radically changes the directions of one's life. It was the belief of John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I moved that day from mental assent to the gospel, intellectual belief, to life, the God of personal experience. That power has been at work in my life for more than two decades. It's changed my attitudes of my heart more times than I can count. It has convicted me of sin I might have merely shrugged at. It once gave me courage to leave a secure salary and move halfway around the world. So that's a great and glorious story of what the gospel is all about. She moved from intellectual belief, oh God, to personal experience. You are my God. And that's what we proclaim here in, in our church. This is the gospel, the good news, that you can have more of God than just a practical atheism, if you like. You can have much more of God. You can come to the God of personal experience. Now, we've put uh, Revelation 3.20 there on the screen. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat, eat with that person and they with me. And this is a picture of what it means to become a Christian. So if the Lord Jesus is knocking on the door of your life today, if the Holy Spirit is pressing in on you, and saying, hey, you need to leave, move from just an intellectual belief, just a casual relationship with God. Um, you salute him, but you do not speak, as someone once said. Just a, just a very casual intellectual belief. You need to move to the God of personal experience. And you can do that today. You can open the door of your life if you hear that voice, and he says he'll come and fellowship with you. That's a wonderful truth. Now lastly, thirdly, we have what we have here is a God of spiritual priority. And the optics for this, I think, it portrays a magnified view of God, and so the microscope, I think, is a good optic to illustrate this. See, we've moved from the wide and to a more focused one. Oh God, you are my God. And here we come to a very intense understanding of our relationship with God. Earnestly I seek you, said David, or early will I seek you. Now this was no addendum to life. This was no postscript to the life of David. This was not, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. Not at all. This is God as a spiritual priority. I like how Eugene Peterson in the um, message translates it. He says, David cries out, I can't get enough of you. I can't get enough of you. More God. I want more of you. Earnestly, I will seek you. Now, I want to be very practical this morning and touch on what does it really mean to seek God early, to seek him earnestly? In practical terms, what does that mean? Well, let's look at it, first of all, in relation to our decisions. 
Early, earnestly, I will seek you. Now, we make decisions every day, don't we? Big decisions sometimes, small decisions, but we make decisions. And I think those who are counselors, perhaps those who are pastors, have a fair idea that many people who come to them and, and with the, the intention or the request for some guidance about making decisions, that generally speaking, these people have made up their minds that what they're looking for is not um, guidance, they're really looking for confirmation. You know, I've made up my mind, don't bother me with the facts, you know. Um, but with decisions, sometimes we make up our minds very, very quickly. But to have more of God with our decisions, we need to seek God early. Now, I, knew, I, I, I do know that, that decision-making is not a precise science, even for the Christian, even for the one who seeks more of God in the decisions, big and small, the decisions of life. It's not a very precise science. And sometimes you, you have to follow what you feel is the best option. It's as if God is pointing you in that way. And I've found that guidance sometimes is known much better in retrospect than it is during the time. You look back and you think, wow, God was really in that. It was the right decision. And uh, sometimes you don't get that feeling of confidence until the decision's been made and it's a little bit down the road. But how can we have more of God? We need to earnestly and early seek him in the decisions, the daily decisions and the big life decisions that we have to make. Then, too, we need to seek God earnestly and early in our devotions. Now, there needs to be a degree of intentionality here regarding devotional life, the personal devotional life, personal prayer life. These things are a spiritual practice. Um, they're very important. But I've found that over the years, take prayer, for example, prayer can, can be difficult for the Christian. We all know we should pray. We should pray a lot more. It's easy to feel guilty about it. Um, I sometimes think there's a satanic conspiracy to keep us from praying. Seems to be a battle at times. But I am reminded that C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters, where the senior devil is instructing a younger devil as to how to trip up Christians, he says, keep Christians from praying because prayer is lethal to our cause. So that's a, a good reminder that prayer is very important. Well... My prayer life has changed over the years, and I, I want to share honestly with you today because I know the struggles that we can have in our devotions and putting God first and wanting more of God, particularly in prayer and in a devotional life. There was a time when I would pray at least an hour a day. This was back in the 80s, 1980s, and there was a, a movement of prayer using the Lord's Prayer as the foundation for praying. And you know, it, it, it's sort of, I was motivated and, and mentored by someone in that. Times change. Things are quite different now in my prayer life. Um, as you get older, and those of you who are, are advancing in years like I am, um, your, your sleep patterns change, don't they? Um, years ago, I, I'd sleep eight or, eight or nine hours a day. Great sleep. And now... 
um, I can only, I seem to only be able to sleep six hours. Now, I have great urges at later times in the day, like mid-afternoon, to take a nap, which I didn't <laughs> used to do. But at any rate, like this morning, for example, I, I woke up at uh, 4.15. I, I didn't get up at that point, but I, I prayed. I, 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 I sang the hymns that I learned in my youth, uh, the words of the hymns. I worshiped God through them. Uh, it's funny, you know, when you get older, sometimes you can't remember the immediate, but you can remember back decades, you know. So those of you who are young, your time will come. But, <laughs> but at any rate, I worshiped the Lord in prayer, and I prayed about some family situations, and in my spirit I prayed, and I sang, and I worshiped, prayed about the service today. So prayer can be in different places at different times in different circumstances. You don't have to get on your knees and pray for an hour. Great if you can, but it, there, there's a lot of variations to it. I used to pray too when I was driving a lot, when I was uh, working with Scripture Union and calling on people in churches, and I would pray while I was driving. Um, and uh, so, But we need to have some intentionality about our devotions. We need more of God, but we need to have some form of intentionality in our devotional lives. That's a way in which we can seek God earnestly and early. And then, too, we need to uh, seek God in our difficulties. Our difficulties. Everybody has difficulties in their lives. Life is filled with landmines that haunt us at times and give us troubles. And... Um, Couple of, this week was going quite well. Then I was alerted to the fact that uh, one of our grandchildren was having some problems, and it, it kind of deflated me. And so you have difficulties to do with families, to do with work, to do with interpersonal relationships, to do with your marriages, your children. Uh, there are difficulties that come by all the time. Now, particularly medical difficulties... Uh, a word from what doctors say, and I have had this said to me on one occasion, why didn't you come to me sooner? You see, when difficulties come on us, sometimes we, we don't seek God early in them. We allow them to compound. And one thing I've learned is that when difficulties come, if you don't address them, they get worse. All sorts of things, they get, get worse. But if we pray in the midst of our difficulties, we have assurance that the God will hear us. And that's what David is doing here. He's praying in the midst of his difficulty, family difficulty, a rebellious son who wants to push him out as king in the kingdom. And he prays, Oh, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And he was in a spiritually dry and weary land. And so he prayed, Oh God, yes, you are my God. I seek you eagerly, earnestly this morning. Yes, we need to, need to pray. Why didn't you come sooner? The scriptures say, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there we have it, the first emphasis of our church mission statement. More God, more God. 
And this is not a nebulous thing. It's a very practical thing. How can you have more God? How can you have more God? I don't know how that applies to you. I don't know where you are in your journey today. But all of us, wherever we are and whatever's going on in our lives, we all need more of God. We need more God. We need not just a fuzzy belief in the mushy, soft God, but we need to experience the personal God who knows us by name and who loves us, and we need to make him a priority in our lives. More God, and what will follow is more love, and then will come more life. So let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord, we thank you that we are your children. And David said he worshipped you in the sanctuary, and here we are in the house of God today with fellow brothers and sisters. And we're praying, and we're worshipping. Excavate an emptiness in our lives, Lord, so that we, we earnestly and eagerly want more of you an emptiness we want to fill with you till we reach the point and, and, and we say, I can't get enough of you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly and eagerly I seek you. Hallelujah and amen.